0: Welcome to Talking Dolls
1: The podcast about dolls and doll history
0: Where we talk dolls
1: I'm your host Joe,
0: And I'm Emma Kate
1: And in today's episode we've got an exciting interview with somebody you may have seen on Instagram
0: We have our very special guest who's been active in the toy industry since the 1980s
1: And if you grew up in the 80s, there's a very good chance you played with something she created
0: Or even the 2000s, I know I played with things she created
1: she is very prolific. It's our guest, Stephanie Askander.
2: Hi, I'm so glad to be with you. I'm Stephanie. And as you mentioned, I've been uh, designing dolls and toys since the early 80s, and I'm still doing it today. So this has been an awesome career for me and kind of a perfect career for me. So I'm just grateful that I've had an opportunity to get to know a lot of people in the toy industry through fan conventions and through social media that uh, other than job colleagues, I really didn't have that opportunity in the past. So this has been really fun for me in the last few years to get to know so many fans of toys that I worked on and a lot that I didn't.
1: Well, it must have been really exciting to kind of come into social media and find these pre-established communities of people that grew up on things you created and were really nostalgic for them and, and built these big fan communities dedicated to them
2: that's exactly right um the fan communities for it actually started with gem and it was uh two years ago <clears throat> a little over two years ago that i was invited to be a guest at my first um fan convention which was i think that's when we met yeah yeah GemCon. And uh, just before, actually coincidentally, right before GEMCON, as I was preparing for that, I was contacted by the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. And they asked me if I would be willing to donate uh, a lot of my toy archives to their museum. And so I began a, a several months long quest to really organize my files to go through photograph and document everything make sure my files were up to date and then um i i started an an instagram account called steph designs toys and it's actually today's my two-year anniversary of that account oh that's wonderful
1: that's perfect timing then
2: perfect timing perfect timing so um, when I went to uh, Cleveland for GemCon, I rented a car and then I drove, I brought my files with me and I drove them to Rochester, New York and hand delivered them to the Strong Museum. We had a chance to tour the museum. I'd actually been there several times years and years ago when I was working for Fisher-Price in the, in the early 90s, but I hadn't been back since then. And I was really honored to be a part of that museum. So. You know, it's kind of been this amazing explosion in the last two years of interest in what I've been doing and other people too. There's certainly many, many toy designers out there that don't receive very much recognition, uh, unfortunately, and they they probably should. But but I do need to tell you that um, the reason for that is that the toy industry is really just like most industries is a very secretive industry and we are discouraged from talking about things that we're doing in our in our work due to confidentiality constraints and all kinds of you know secretiveness that we need to do to keep our con our concepts and what we're doing confidential and so you know it's only been in the last couple of years that I've even you know shared anything that I've done I've got friends that I've known for decades that never knew what I did in my career because unless I did something that actually came out and hit the shelves I couldn't talk about it and even if it did come out and hit the shelves it's not like I was walking around going oh look what I did you know I'm not that kind of a person I'm a little bit more private about that kind of thing so this has been kind of like an explosion of of access to what I've been doing and it's it's been exciting, but it's also been a little unnerving because I'm still not 100% sure
0: if I should be talking about any of this. <laughs>
1: uh, well, it definitely sounds very cloak and dagger.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was something I was hoping to ask you about with how many different companies you've worked for. If it was ever a struggle to make sure your work with the different companies stayed confidential between jobs.
2: That's a really interesting question. Um, I have a couple of different answers. First of all, I have always been able to keep things confidential. I've never really had a problem with, you know, keeping my mouth shut. And and because of the culture of the industry, because that's what we were expected was to, you know, keep our company's secrets. You know, most of my career, a good portion of my career, I was working for a toy company full time as a staff designer of some type. And so, you know, you just learn to do that. But I had an interesting experience when I very first got into the toy industry. I, I uh, started my career at Mattel and I was hired at the very end of 1984, although I'd been freelancing uh, in the toy industry for a couple of years before that. And so uh, in 1985, there was a huge upheaval in the toy industry. I mean, Mattel had been the number one toy company for years and years. And Hasbro had recently made some acquisitions that had put them kind of at the top of the heap, either number one or number two. They bought PlaySchool and um, some other toy companies. And so they, through acquisitions, they began growing and they were creating some new and exciting properties But, of course, Mattel was kind of the coveted company. And and so I was kind of wooed by Hasbro. I was contacted by a recruiter and and went out to Hasbro at the beginning of 1986. And I was, um, of course, offered a job, and they were really excited to have me. And when I first started, they used to invite me to come into these meetings, even with things that I had nothing to do with because they were trying to punt me for information about what Mattel was doing. And honestly, I'd only been full-time in the toy industry a little over a year, and I was clueless. But let me tell you, I learned to tap dance really well. I I didn't want to um, be disloyal to Mattel. I knew that I couldn't really reveal any secrets, but I would kind of skirt around things so that Hasbro would think I knew more than I knew, but I wasn't really revealing any trade secrets from Hasbro. And it was a little bit uncomfortable for me, but eventually things kind of settled down. And after a while, they didn't. They knew I didn't know anything anymore because enough time had passed that I wouldn't have any particular insights. But I do remember how funny it was that they would invite me to all these meetings, thinking that I was going to Give them all the dirt on Mattel.
0: Yeah, I think that that is an interesting thing when you hear stories from the time, such as how Mattel figured out what Hasbro is working on with Jem. and likewise. I don't think a lot of people realize just how cloak and dagger toys can get.
1: <laughs> no, they really don't.
2: It's it's really it's really true, and it's funny too that that Mattel has since admitted, you know, their their cloak and dagger uh, activities on that. I mean, I. I was really surprised. We all knew when it was going on that something was happening, that there was some kind of, you know, spying going on. We weren't sure exactly how it was, but I thought it was interesting when I watched uh, the toys that made us, the episode about Barbie and uh, Mattel was so, uh, they laughed. You know, they thought, it, I think they thought it was kind of funny that they were able to through the factories, get the information about Jim so that they could beat, beat her to the market and have another rock and roll themed doll line uh, to compete with with Jem.
1: Yeah, I know quite a few people that didn't actually know about um, Mattel spying on Hasbro before The Toys That Made Us, and they were really shocked when they found out about it. And um, a couple of them were actually quite upset.
0: Yeah, it's hard to look at Barbie and the Rockers the same way after you find out just how they were made.
2: Right. And, and you know, the, and I know that you, you guys are probably interested in some of the technical aspects of, of toy making. Maybe some of your listeners are interested in that too. But one of the things that's really has a lot to do with how quickly you can put things together and put them in the marketplace is uh, fashions. And dolls themselves take longer to develop because you have to sculpt and you have to, you know, do the manufacturing process. But Mattel had an advantage. Barbie was already done. You know, All they had to do was design a whole new line of fashions, throw some accessories together and put some packaging. But but Hasbro had to develop Jim from scratch. And so um, it's a lot more time consuming to do a, a doll line when you don't just have to do the fashions when you have to do all of the development. And so it really kind of gave them an unfair advantage. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I mean, the the name of the game, it's a fashion industry. There's no doubt about it. Toys is a fashion industry, even if you're not talking about fashion dolls, because it's just, it's entertainment. And so there's always going to be cloak and dagger with trying to get something to market first. But Hasbro did have a disadvantage uh, in that, You know, they had all that time. They needed all that time to develop it. Mattel was able to come in and turn around on a dime.
1: Yeah, I think because Gem obviously had a lot of passion put into it. And I do think one thing which I think we need to make clear for the listeners is this is something every toy company does. I know... um, a few years back when uh, Monster High was really popular and MGA was making some things to compete with them in kind of the spooky doll market. There was quite a lot of animosity with fans Mm -hmm. on the internet. And I do think that we, you know, listeners, this is something that happens a lot. Every company does it. Please don't, like, get your pitchforks and torches and be angry at Mattel (laughs) because it's kind of a universal thing.
0: Let's not cancel Mattel over 30-year-old drama.
1: No, exactly.
0: (laughs)
2: Yeah, there, there certainly is no end of drama. I mean, anybody who knows the uh, Brat story and them telling them versus MGA, there's a lot of intrigue in the toy industry.
1: Well, it definitely sounds like there is. And speaking of the industry, how did you get into it to start with?
2: Well, it's a little bit interesting. I, First of all, I have always wanted to be a children's artist. I mean, my my dream when I was a child was to be a children's book illustrator. And so that was kind of the uh, direction that I pursued. I got my degree in illustration, and I but I was doing children's work too. I mean, you can't really get a degree in children's illustration, at least back then, in the '70s. And so I got my uh, I did get my degree in illustration, and I started working in advertising right away. I was a storyboard illustrator uh, for. Um, one one of the biggest advertising agencies in Los Angeles. I'm from Southern California originally. And so I was working for uh, ad agencies and then I left full-time work when I had my first child who is just about to turn 41 next week. So that tells you how many years ago it was. And so I began to freelance. So for the next five years, I was freelancing in Los Angeles for different ad agencies, and I started uh, doing storyboard work for Ogilvy and Mather, who was Mattel's ad agency, and for uh, Young and Rubicam, who was Tomy's advertising agency. And so I was doing storyboards for Get Along Gang, and for Barbie, and CNC and, and Masters of the Universe, and Kimberly Dolls. And so I was kind of, I had also been doing work for a small advertising agency in Los Angeles who had a, a small toy company called Small World Toys as their one of their major accounts. And this uh, agency ha- asked me if I'd be interested in designing some doll packaging, doll boxes for a line of dolls that this company did. And so I designed two series of doll boxes. And that, that was kind of a natural thing for me because I, you know, I considered myself an illustrator, not a product designer. And so I did these doll boxes and the company then contacted me directly and they asked me, and this was in 1982, they asked me if I would be interested in designing a line of puzzles for the company for Small World Toys. And so my next uh, big project was to design these puzzles. And so that was kind what happened was I ended up with kind of a portfolio of children's art. I also, I'd been illustrating for a children's magazine for a number of years. And, and so I had you know, puzzles, I had toy packaging, I had other children's art that I had been doing for a number of years. And I had a friend who told me that Mattel was having a job fair. And this was held in November of 1984. And so I carted my portfolio down to Mattel and Hawthorne and went to this job fair and showed it to a couple of the design directors. And basically, they hired me right on the spot. And so that was that was and I don't think that could happen today. At least I don't think so. I had no experience as far as product design. I considered myself an illustrator. So when I went to work at Mattel, the first day I met with this woman who had been the person who hired me and she kind of presented me with, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go into our packaging department and be a a package illustrator or would you like to come into product design? And I was just like, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, I didn't have any experience in product design, but package illustration didn't sound quite as fun. And so I just kind of closed my eyes and gritted my teeth and said, I think product design and that, you know, that was just one of those couple of, you know, crossroads moments in my career that have made all the difference because once I chose product design, it just, it changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my career and it's just been the best thing. Had I gone into packaging design, package illustration, I would have a totally different story to tell and I probably wouldn't be uh, telling the stories that I'm telling today. So anyway, I'm just, grateful that I did that. So starting at the very beginning of 1985, um, that began my journey.
1: Well, it's a good thing you took that jump, because otherwise loads of really cool and iconic toys wouldn't exist. You know, because even though this podcast is focusing on fashion dolls, um, Emma-Kate and I are both really interested in the toy industry as a whole as well.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things that is kind of interesting... I think about the toy industry and, and, you know, I want to make sure that that my place in the toy industry is really kind of clarified. Um, I never worked in, you know, I never aspired to be a fashion doll designer in, and and at, at Mattel, which has a very, very different corporate culture than other toy companies, you know, Barbie is queen and I did not work in the Barbie group. I was not involved with fashion dolls. I was in What they they call the the cool cool. kid table. (laughs) It was the cool kid, but that's not what I wanted to do. I was in the large and small dolls group. And so uh, we were doing all kinds of, I felt that the variety was much more fun in the other dolls groups rather than the Barbie group. Uh, And you'll find in the toy industry that there is kind of a delineation between fashion dolls and other kinds of dolls. And I'm a designer who has done, Probably every kind of doll there is, but most people who are fashion dolls don't translate, their skills don't translate into doing baby dolls or mini dolls or novelty dolls or plush. You see what I mean? It's a much more specialized field. And so I feel like my career trajectory has been a lot more well-rounded and for me more fun than if I had just done fashion dolls. So you know it's been a great experience, but a, a lot of people who do Barbie find that uh, their you know skill set is not necessarily as much in demand at other toy companies, other than Mattel, because you know there there are occasional forays into uh, fashion by other companies, and I'm sure that Mattel people have left and gone to other companies. That happens, but uh, on the whole. Uh, being a fashion doll specialist designer doesn't necessarily translate into being a, a well-rounded toy designer.
1: I think with social media, it's really visible now as well that they are primarily fashion designers designing streetwear and sometimes couture for collector dolls.
2: Right. And, and most of the, the Barbie designers, and this is true of fashion doll designers and other companies, their backgrounds are different. They come from a fashion design background. They went to FIT or they went to Otis and studied fashion design, and then maybe went into fashion dolls from there. But other other types of toy designers have different types of backgrounds.
0: Yes. So your time at Mattel, that would have been the round the time you worked on Lady Lovelylocks, and yes, I did. And when I went, one of
2: the things that's kind of interesting. There's a big difference between working for a toy company full time and freelancing, and I imagine that we'll discuss this a little bit more further down the road. But one of the things that's kind of interesting about working for a particularly a large company is you generally tend to be working on a lot of different things at the same time. And so I was uh, I was only at Mattel the first time for a little over a year, fourteen months. And then I went to Hasbro. And during the time that I was there, I was working on Rainbow Bright, Lady Lovely Locks, My Child, and Popples. And we were working on other toy lines that never uh, were never produced. And that's just all in a year, a little more than a year. So, uh, you know, it isn't like you work on a project and you go from from start to finish and then you start something else. You're working on all kinds of things simultaneously. So, yeah, I did. I started out, my very first projects were Lady Lovely Locks and Rainbow Bright.
0: Yeah, I have a couple Lady Lovely Locks. I really think that they're cute. They're darling. Oh, I love them. I love them.
2: I did not design any of the dolls for that. They were, um, by the time I came to Mattel, Lady Lovely Locks was in its maybe second year. And that's also, and then Rainbow Bright was in its last year which we didn't know, of course, at the time. My chi- I was there for the development of my child. I didn't work on the dolls. I worked on accessories and play sets. But um, the, the one that you know, we developed in our group internally was my child and Popples, where we started from scratch and you know, designed everything about the, the project. And that was, that's, that was really fun.
1: Mm, it's really interesting to me that you worked on both My Child and Cabbage Patch, because I think there's a lot of shared DNA between those two lines.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. And I, I think that it, Mattel was really trying to not capitalize on Cabbage Patch at all, but just trying to do their version of a no-feature, soft, baby, toddler doll that was endearing and, you know, little girls would love. But their idea was to introduce new technology, which was the way they did the eyes was something completely unique and new. And to have a doll that was, you know, fabric, that still had a structure underneath it to make it like it was a rag doll, but it wasn't.
0: So I don't know much about my child. What exactly is my child? Um, My child was a, a, a
2: baby toddler Type doll that was had rooted hair, but it had a fabric covered face, Um, and the body was jointed at the shoulders. You know, Cabbage Patch isn't jointed; it's just stitched in such a way that it's very floppy. But uh, my child dolls were actually uh, jointed, and they had they they wore realistic baby clothes. They were very pretty. They were very soft faces. And what they did was they, um, did, and it was one of my best friends at Mattel that developed this technology of doing an eye, you know, an eye design that was, what they did was they made a, an eye shape out of clear plastic, and it was decorated from the back side. So you were seeing, and then it was inserted into the doll face. So what you were seeing was you were seeing through the plastic to the paint. So it was kind of painted backwards. Does that make
0: sense?
1: Yeah, like an animation cell.
2: Yeah, exactly, like an exactly like an animation. Oh, cell. I've just so looked that... up
0: pictures of these, and they really remind me of precious moments, like in their oh. sort of style.
2: Yeah, they, you know, that that's interesting too, because um, I was when I was asked. I'm always asked about, you know, how things have changed in the toy industry, and one of the big changes is back in the '80s. Even though we have Jam and Barbie and the Rockers, and there were kind of an 80s culture, the 80s, especially in the early 80s, there was a lot of nostalgia and there was a lot of sweetness. And when you talk about precious moments, you know, you talk about the end of Holly Hobby and, and that kind of thing. And I was going back through my notes um, from when I very first started at Mattel 1985. And I was looking at some brainstorm notes At we were getting ready to develop what we call a proprietary character, which basically means a non-licensed toy line, non-licensed doll line. And I look at this list of names and themes and everything, and they were all very innocent. You know, things like, you know, beautiful and scrapbooking and lace and flowers and secrets and lockets and things like that. And, you know, you don't see that anymore. This is this was a kind of the age, the end of the age of innocence with toys. And I think that um, my child really capitalized that the clothing looked like, well, I remember one of the things that we would do is we started subscribing to these high-end French fashion magazines for children. And we were bringing, you know, we would do research and we would go through these magazines to find out what what the Parisians were dressing their babies and their children in not, you know, not adult fashion, but children's fashion. And so the designers who worked on the fashions on My Child were making things with beautiful little embroidery and with smocking and very traditional baby clothes, not, you know, in it, not cheap looking, but classy.
1: Yeah, I really love the nautical ones, the ones in the sailor suits, the red and blue are so cute.
2: Yes. And that's the one that I had that my daughter, who at the time uh, I was working on my child, she was quite, quite young. She was about three. And she begged me for years and years and years. And I finally gave it to her and she still has it. She, she took good care of it. Um, But that, but I had the little red head with the sailor suit and I I love that.
1: Yeah, they're such beautiful dolls. I really love that Mattel gave them that gorgeous brushable hair when the Cabbage Patch Kids have uh, the yarn, because Mattel was like, gotta have that hair play.
2: And and that's true. You don't see you don't see them with you know little hair or tiny tiny short haircuts. They had, you know, they had hair that you could brush, and they figured out a way to root. I mean, these dolls are trico, which is the you know the the br- what they call brush trico, which is that kind of velvety fabric. The faces, there was an under structure for the face that was molded out of vinyl, and then they stretched that fabric over the face and over the head, and they were able to root those dolls. They weren't wigs. I mean, most dolls that have soft, you know, hair, they have to sew it in like yarn, right? That's what Cabbage Patch did. They sew that in, but it's really hard to do that with saran or nylon or whatever material hair you are working. so they they rooted the doll's hair and they they really did a beautiful beautiful high quality job on those dolls i i wish i had been able been more involved in the doll development rather than the accessories
0: but um,
1: well even uh, the accessories were a work of art
2: yeah they
0: they really are and i think that that's interesting what you're talking about with the end of the Age of Innocence in the early 80s because I've been a long time fan of Chrissy dolls and I've always wondered why the last couple entries in the Chrissy doll line were much more childlike than her predecessors hmm. but that That's makes a cool. lot of sense
2: yeah I, I think that um, times change I mean like I mentioned before the, the toy industry is a fashion industry and you've got to keep up with the trends and it's really hard because you know every decade every era has its own aesthetic and own priority for toys and it it's you know follows a historic trajectory you can almost see how things move from one one place to another. I do kind of miss that sweetness and, and as I'm a parent myself and during the time that I was designing you know when I started at Mattel I already had two children. My third child was born while I was at Mattel. And then later, my last child was born when I, uh, at, when I was at Tonka in the early 90s. And so uh, unlike a lot of designers, I had small children at home. So I kind of was a, was a parent. I wasn't one of those designers who was trying to push the envelope. I was trying to develop toys that were age-appropriate for my kids and for their friends. And that's always been a hard thing to do. And I think especially for young designers who are maybe fresh out of design school and, and aren't parents themselves, there is a lot of envelope pushing and stuff going on that I think parenthood kind of helps. You don't have to be a parent to be a good toy designer. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm just saying, for me, it really helped. I thought it helped me.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because I suppose the more things change, the more they stay the same. Have you heard of the uh, Nana Surprise Dolls by MGI? Yes. Because they have a really similar construction to the My Child dolls. They've got the uh, plastic body with the fabric on the outside and then brushable hair. Only on the Nana Surprise dolls, it's a wig instead of rooted. They also have a highly detailed printed eye instead of anything inset. But if anything, that's kind of reminiscent of the inset eye. But aesthetically, they couldn't be further from each other. Like you said, My Child are very innocent and childish, but Nana Surprise have really modern fashions and they even have printed on lingerie.
0: Under their clothes, under their clothes, but yes.
2: Yeah, I um, I've heard. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry, my video came on for some reason.
1: Well, that's all right. Well, we can yeah. edit this out if you want. Um, if you don't want to like talk about no, anything I, that's current in the industry. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, 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 have to keep up because I am, I'm a designer, but it, it, uh, you know, I can't keep up with everything as much as I would like to. I do, you know, I found that. Knowing whatever what other people in the toy industry were doing, especially when I was working full time for one company, was really really helpful because you know it's it's comp- it's competitive and you have to know what other
0: people are doing. So um, yeah, that's good to know. Those um, those are MGA, correct? Yeah. On MGA has done a lot of very backward looking ideas. Like the high glam dolls are very reminiscent of Hasbro's Leggy.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I always think it seems like MGA designers really know their stuff and they're kind of building on successful concepts from the past, but giving it like a really modern and fresh updated twist. Like, I love the backpack carry case they do for the Nana Na Surprise dolls because I just think that's such a great playset. And when was the last time you saw a carry case in modern fashion dolls?
2: And that's probably yeah, true. I like that. um, you know, I know people who work there currently, who have worked there. I, you know, I think the best toy designers really are interested in toys and in studying them and seeing what works and what doesn't. And not just what's trendy, but what but well, what seems to be the most fun. I mean, I, I, for years, I considered myself a doll designer. And I remember when, when I left, the, here's another story coming. For you. So as I mentioned before, I was only at Mattel the first time for just a, about 14 months. And then I went to work for Hasbro. And when I got to Hasbro, I had another one of those uh, epiphany moments where um, I had been, recruited by a, the woman who was the head of the my little pony group and so when i got there for my interview you know this is before i was hired but when i went for the interview uh i saw her first and she had she was actually a, a good friend of one of my mattel designer friends and she's the one that got me the interview and blah 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 anyway so um So she was the head of the My Little Pony group. And then I also interviewed with the woman who was the head of the dolls group. And so they, they both, they let me know pretty much right early on when I went in for my interview that they were seriously considering me. I mean, I didn't have to, I didn't have to wait or, you know, they, they pretty much wanted me. The fact that I was from Mattel was a big bonus. So I remember being asked, well, which group would you rather work for that, you know, the My Little Pony group or the Dolls group. And again, I felt a certain little tug of loyalty to the woman who had originally been my contact, who was the head of the My Little Pony group. But I really thought, no, I I think I want to do dolls. I mean, when I was at Mattel in the Large and Small Dolls group, I was doing um, play sets and accessories. I wasn't just doing dolls. And so, but I really liked dolls. I I thought I drew fairly well. I... I, um, was good with character development things. So I just again closed my eyes and kind of gritted my teeth and said I want to do be in the dolls group. And so at at Hasbro I was there for four years and I was in the dolls group and just that was for me. I mean that's really where I really learned the doll business. you know, everything about all the technical aspects of designing dolls and designing for sculpture and rooting and paint doing face deco and you know, doing the technical drawings that were necessary for doll development. I designed some a lot of accessories too, but it was mostly dolls. But later down the road, and I'm jumping ahead in my career when I started freelancing back in the late 90s, um, I had I was promoting myself as a doll designer, but I started getting a lot of freelance projects that were play sets and accessories and and I, I, was thinking, well, I, I'm not very good at this. You know, this is this is a lot harder for me to design sets. They're a lot more technical. They're a lot. They take an ability to think in three dimensions, and I really didn't feel that comfortable. But what happened was, with time and with practice, I became a lot better at it. And so I just. Finally, you know, stopped calling myself a doll designer and started calling myself a toy designer. And I'm bringing that back to our discussion about MGA and different designers. My focus has always been on toys as a as children's playthings, not as a fashion statement or a, a fad or anything like that. My focus has always been on the kids. the the kids who are playing with it. I mean, I love the collecting community. I love all of you people who are wanting to get the toys of your childhood and your youth and re recreate that magic. My, my my focus has always been on children, you know, not adult collectors and stuff. And so um, I love what makes toys fun. You know, you were talking about with the, my child dolls, how they had that hair play And we know, of course, that that's such a high priority play pattern for primarily little girls, but little boys too. You know, when I, I always was a girl's toy designer. I think that the gender roles have kind of, uh, we kind of tend to flatten them out a little bit and and maybe we don't uh, call them necessarily genders, but traditional girl uh, toys, even though boys play with them too. Um learning all we can genres. toy genres right we l-
1: yeah we ended up calling on toy genres to play yeah. it safe
2: yeah exactly and i have no problem with that i i do i do love seeing what kids like to play with and see how they play and watching them play most toy companies have play labs or focus testing or toy testing and things like that where, where they, where you can watch the kids playing with the toys. You can ask them questions. You can uh, find out what their thoughts are about different things. And that's always been one of my favorite things about being a designer Mm -hmm. is to see, what kids love and how they play with things and how they like them. And now I have grandchildren. And so two of, or actually three, I have a new little granddaughter who's under a year old, but.
1: Oh, congratulations.
2: Thank you. I actually have more than that, but the others don't live near, but I have two that live close and I love it when they come into my studio and I love watching them play with my toys. I have a five-year-old, a seven-year-old five-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl that live near And, you know, to see what they enjoy and to watch them play. To me, that's, you know, that's why I design toys, is to bring that happiness to kids.
1: Yeah, and one thing that always blows my mind is when people on social media, like collectors, talk about kids with such disdain, and they're kind of like angry at them, My angry companies are tailoring toys to them. And I just sit there and think, oh my god, if a toy is not fun, there's no point in it existing.
2: I know. And and as a designer who rarely has the occasion to design things just that I want to do, you know, you're an employee or a freelancer, and so you kind of do what you're asked to do. I've, I've been involved in a lot of projects that it was like, what the heck is this? And why this does not seem fun? Or... You know, we in the toy industry, one of the things we talk about a lot are watch-me toys. You know, watch-me toy is just is a toy that you just sit and watch. You know, it does. You, there's no interaction with the toy. You know, it's like Jenny Gymnast that you you put Jenny Gymnast on her little uneven parallel bar and she flips around and you just sit and watch her. Um,
1: or like one of those plushes that reads a story.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they call some of those things they call interactive, but you know they tend to be um more watch me or listen to me and I've been involved with a lot of those kinds of toys but they're never as 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 satisfactory as the toys that do involve a lot of um you know nurturing or interaction or just you know storytelling uh, yes yes involvement with the toy where you have an emotional attachment.
1: Well exactly and I know we said toy genres earlier but just to avoid any confusion I'll use the more traditional terms here I always think it's really interesting that girls toys are almost always more socially focused than boys toys and obviously I'm a man but I was always drawn to the more social focus of the girls toys over the more aggressive concepts presented in the boys toys and their media.
2: Yeah I, I get that and I think that uh, girls' toys are are designed for socialization, and there there's uh, you know there's a lot of toys out there that are not favorites. And it's it's interesting since I've become involved in the fan community. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of prided myself in is my archives. I have quite an extensive archive of. Uh, I'm not talking about toys. I have quite a few toys, but it's mostly books and magazine articles, newspaper articles. I have big binders full of catalog pages and and most of these are from like the 70s up through maybe the early 2000s. Once I started being on the internet more, I didn't really find it as necessary to, you know, make photocopies and scan and stuff the old books like I had at one point, but I have all of these files. And so one of the things that I've noticed with the fan community is that the you don't see anybody who's a big fan of Jenny Gymnast, right? I mean, there's nobody who collects Jenny Gymnast and her and her mm-hmm. little sister. Well, I don't even know if she had a little sister. I don't know. You know, what those one-off kind of high high-tech dolls, the the dolls and toys that people could collect tend to be the ones that they got lost in the world of whether it's Rainbow Bright or My Little Pony or you know Strawberry Shortcake or Gem. Mm-hmm. These, Of course, Jim had the reinforcement of the TV program, the cartoon series, and and Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake and and My Little Pony had that too, but the toys had an emotional attachment, and generally, they didn't really do much, right? I mean, maybe they had, uh, you know, Jim had her Gem Star earrings, or you might have My Little Pony who had flutter wings or twinkly eyes, but generally speaking, these were not high-tech toys one of the things that about about these expensive dolls is they sell a lot you know they might cost a hundred dollars and they sell a lot at christmas but you don't see kids playing with them a month later you know they ended up at the bottom of the toy box with dead batteries and nobody plays with them so mm-hmm. you know that if you want to if you want an evergreen brand that's got long-term um you know sellability it's going to be something that's a little bit lower tech. It doesn't mean that you don't have to add technology or special features to your toys to make them special, but it's not neces; those aren't necessarily any more popular than the ones that don't have the technology in,
0: right? I know with my own childhood, um, I really hated most electronic gimmick toys when I was a kid, but the one that I really did like was I had a mermaid and her tail had a light-up feature when you dipped it in water. Oh. And I always loved that. But that was like the only battery-powered toy that I actually liked.
2: And and I think that's probably true. I'm sure that most everybody has something that they got that was, you know, electrical. One of the things that, that I've always said is that once you put in a mechanism in the toy, it becomes unfriendly. And I use that meaning that... The softer the toy, the friendlier it is.
1: Oh, that's a really great way to phrase and, it.
2: And so you, you know, you you start. You have Go Go, the walking pup, or whatever your your plush is. And what could have been a cute, soft, cuddly dog now becomes this. Even though it's still covered with plush, now becomes this hard box that you don't want to take to bed with you or cuddle with you. I, you know, I know that toys have different meanings to kids, the older they get, obviously girls who, who in the 1980s were playing with Jim are not the same girls who were playing with, you know, teddy bears. They, they were a little older. Uh, And so you want toys that kind of grow with you and, and have the sophistication that you want. I think one of the problems with Barbie is when I'm from the first Barbie generation, I was a child when Barbie came out. And Mm -hmm. so I have my original Barbie when I was a child. And now I got my first Barbie when I was 10 years old. That's really old. Of course, Barbie wasn't around when I was three and four. So um, I still have her. When I was a child, we had one Barbie. I didn't know anybody that had more than one Barbie. What we did was we had one Barbie and then we went out and got lots of fashions for the Barbie or some, sometimes our mothers were clever. And like I had a sister who sewed, you know, they might make a bar, some Barbie fashions, but it was all about changing the clothes. You didn't go out and buy a new Barbie every time you wanted a new outfit. And so, you know, what happened with Barbie as Barbie progressed and became so extremely popular, they just discovered it was just a lot easier to just sell more, more dolls and fewer fashions, fashions, you know, became the doll you know like if you had a peaches and cream Barbie you didn't put another outfit on it she said she was peaches and cream Barbie right so uh, it you know became more and more of accumulating lots and lots of dolls and then when there was no place to go then they started aging it down my first Barbie girls you know were starting to get into Barbie at two and three years old. Well older girls didn't want to play with Barbie. If you were 8 or 9 years old, you didn't want to play with Barbie if your 3-year-old sister was playing with Barbie. It wasn't cool. And so, you know, that led to the development of of other types of fashion dolls. And so that I think I think Mattel kind of wised up and at some point they decided to use the younger segments for their more fantasy segments there Disney princesses and then uh, other types, they have generic princesses. And then they, in the early 2000s, they started making Barbie movies. Uh, They, you know, the different um, Dreamtopia and, you know, the different movies that were.
1: Oh, like uh, Princess and the Pulpa.
2: The Magic of Pegasus. They And they would have these movies, right? The uh,
0: I can't even remember the names of them all. I did.
1: Oh, yeah, because you did the Cloud Castle play set for Magic of Pegasus, didn't you?
0: Yes. When you worked on Mini Kingdom as well. Right, I
2: did. And so these dolls, you know, they had to figure out, well, what were they were going to do? Because older girls were not, I mean, older girls were not playing with toys anymore at all, right? So then they had to expand their base and maybe keep, they had their you know, fashionista dolls and some of the other dolls that were a little bit more fashion driven for the older kids and the younger kids got all the princesses and then they made the movies. And, you know, like you said, I did work on a lot of the play sets for some of these Barbie movies, never worked on the dolls, but worked on, um, lots of castles and lots of fantasy things for Barbie.
1: Well, that's really interesting to me because a lot of the stuff you've brought up is stuff we always end up talking about anyway. Um, But sort of like a microcosm of what you've been saying, um, I always find it really strange how early on Mattel really focused on the... Barbie movie dolls that tied into the CGI movies being really high quality, having really luxurious fashions, and having really traditional Barbie fashion play. And then as they progressed, uh, they started to get more and more extreme gimmicks, like the Diamond Castle dolls, who had non removable fashions and their skirts would like flip up and revolve around to change colors. And, you know, they couldn't be undressed at all or used like a traditional Barbie doll.
0: Oh, and the, the spy the spy movie they did where the doll's entire outfit was molded onto the body and they had action features and they're hardly even dolls
1: oh my god yeah
0: Yeah,
2: i agree and I, of course i was at, during those years i was freelance so i wasn't involved in any of the development um, of the properties that they were you know the movie properties and, and the fantasy they would just send me photos and stills and and some guidelines, and then I would just kind of have to come up with whatever was required.
0: Yeah, well, and that, that's something that really kills me with the Barbie movie Princess Dolls, is you go back to an early movie like Princess and the Popper, and the dolls have metal jewelry. Like, they are a high-quality product. And then, yeah, they got more and more plastic, more gimmick, more built-in features that make it unusable as a storytelling doll I'm,
2: and i'm really not sure what their strategy is on that you know i again i have very limited contact with the, the ins and outs of what mattel's design team is doing i mean i did go back to mattel the second time in the mid 90s um when i worked on cabbage patch And I was in the large and small dolls group there. I worked in Little Miss and Polly Pocket and Cabbage Patch. And uh, we did the relaunch of Chatty Cathy. But again, I was not uh, hooked in with the the Barbie group at all, other than, you know, knowing some of the designers and, and, you know, seeing what they were doing. So when I left Mattel in late 1997 and started freelancing, uh, I was you know, for the next 10 years or so, I did quite a bit of work for Barbie accessories and it was all kind of new to me because I really hadn't followed Barbie, what was going on in the Barbie world, but it was, you know, I had some fun experiences and enjoyed those projects.
0: So when you say accessories, what kind of accessories are you meaning?
2: Um, Well, that's it for Barbie. There were a lot of things that I did. I mean, Things like um, I designed a a series of Barbie crafts where you could put the bar. It was, it wasn't exactly a play set, you know, it was like a flower drying set for Barbie. So it was kind of like a Barbie themed activity set, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Or, I mean, I did do a lot of play sets, but there might be, you know, things like pets, that kind of thing. You know, anything that wasn't the the Barbie itself.
0: Yeah, I have to wonder, because that would have been around the time that I was growing up. So I have to wonder if I had any of them.
2: Yeah, I, um, I, I do post quite a bit of all that stuff on my Instagram. I have posted quite a few things. You've, you've seen my the castles and mm-hmm. things that I've done, but I've also done... They call it Barbie accessories, but it's really kind of Barbie play sets. And some things are small you know, small accessories, but for the most part, they're play sets. So, uh, you know, if you're doing a, um, and I didn't do this, but I'm just giving you an example. If you were doing, if there was a veterinarian Barbie, the person who designed all the little pets and all the little activities and things that come with the Barbie, that would be Barbie accessories. Mm, that's interesting. So, yeah. And a lot of the stuff I did never came out. And, and that's, that's probably one of the biggest, I think, mix, misconceptions that people have that I learned really quickly when I started sharing my, my toys was I realized that a huge percentage of things that I designed never were actually released. They were, you know, they we call them being killed. You know, They were killed off for one reason or another. It could have been um, budget concerns. It could have been they just ch- decided to change direction. They might have decided that, that it didn't make any sense for their marketing plan. As a designer, that we're not privy to all of that kind of information. You know, why a company decides to kill off a line or or a product before it goes to market. But I'll tell you, the larger the company, the more likely you are to work on projects that don't come to market. If you work for a very small company, they don't have those kind of budgets to spend time you know, months and months of development, only to say, "Oh, never mind, we're not going to do that toy." They they don't have that. If if they pursue something, chances are they're going to produce it. Uh, so, but most of my uh, toy company experience were with larger companies, and so I have huge, huge, you know, files full of drawings and things that never saw the light of day. And there's various reasons. So anyway, what I was saying about misconceptions is, I think people were really surprised when I would start sharing drawings of things that had never come to market. And again, I have to be careful about that too because of legal concerns. I don't ever share anything that didn't come to market that was, that was recent. So you, you don't see me sharing a lot of really current, I'm, I'm still designing toys today, but I don't share the things I'm working on online because either they haven't come out or if they were dropped, it was recent enough that, I can't be 100% sure that they might not change their minds down the road. So um, I have to keep those things confidential. But people were really surprised. And I get a lot of comments like, oh, you must be so disappointed. Oh, that was so cute. Oh, why wouldn't they do that? And, you know, as a toy designer, you have to be super flexible. And you have to be, you can't get too attached to your designs you have to move on if something doesn't move forward you just go on to the next project you know you don't weep about it. Um, I do remember though one huge disappointment when I was working at Hasbro and I was working on moon dreamers and this was right around well it was shortly after the demise of gem. And we all loved working on Moon Dreamers. It was one of of my favorite lines. I came in for the second year and I designed all the um, 19, what would have been the 1988 line of Moon Dreamers and the Starfinders. And so all of my dolls were prototyped. They were shown at Toy Fair. They were in the Toy Fair catalog. And then in the spring of 1987, um, they were dropped. And we had a little funeral for him. I remember having a little casket and it was really sad. There was actually, a f- I think, a funeral for Jem too, but I was on vacation and I missed it. So
0: So we left off talking about uh, around the time that Jem and Moondreamers ended.
2: Right, so that would have been mid 1987.
1: Well, could you tell us a bit about Gem then?
2: I came on board in February of 1986, and Gem, the first year of Gem was well underway. So I had nothing to do with the first year of Gem. But um, my my very one of my very very first assignments when I came to Hasbro was to design a Gem makeup head. Which never is oh, wow. the of day. And that's kind oh. of a little interesting knowledge that people don't know about. Yeah, but, I've yeah, never I design, heard of that. I design, and so this is kind of a funny story. I um, We were in this old design, the old building where the designers were kind of sitting on top of each other. They eventually, the next year, they opened up a beautiful design center, but in 1986 they were all still in kind of one building and they had a basement and one design group was in the basement and two design groups were upstairs and marketing was up there it was just everybody was all sitting on and sitting on each other's laps practically and anyway so I was asked to design this gym makeup head and so of course it it was started with sketches and drawings and you'd meet with your boss and there would be approvals and and I'm sure it resembled the original gem sculpture because the glitter and gold sculpture had not been finalized at that point. So it uh, probably looked like the original sculpt, but I don't have any of my drawings because they didn't belong to me, right? So anyway, um, so I did this beautiful rendering with all the features and we would have these meetings with marketing and they involved and I'm not one to name names, so I'm not going to name any names. But I'll just say the man who was the senior VP of marketing, who was kind of a uh, hard-nosed guy, uh, was was in this meeting. And so I walked in with my beautiful rendering that I had spent two weeks on. And I walked in and held up my drawing because we got to present our own stuff. And he looked at me and he waved his hand to the side and he just said, next. Basically, he just brushed me off he was not he didn't even want to discuss it it was just he wanted to see what was next so it was kind of like I got the hook right Mm -hmm. so that was my that was my first experience I have have a
0: question about that so I've heard some stories about the presentation meetings and I heard some things about the artist Judith Nelson doing renderings for those Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering uh, what was her place in that if you were presenting your own drawing for the project?
2: Well, I think it depended on what your level of skill was. Because I could draw, I always presented my own drawings. I never presented anybody else's. So, you know, if you have a freelancer like Judith or, um, let's see, there were there were a number of people that did, you know, were artists that did work. The The designer who had directed the artist would present their work. You know, so in our design group, there would be like four or five designers. It would be, we would each be assigned a certain project. And then it was up to us to put together a presentation rendering and or a breadboard model, you know, models down the road. However, we got that. We either freelanced it out or we did them ourselves, or, you know, whatever. And because I did all my own drawings, I never freelanced out any artwork. I did all mine myself.
0: Okay, yeah, so that's something I was wondering about with um, how that worked. But what was your next project after the makeup head?
1: Oh, before we move on, um, I did just want to ask something. Um, I know that there were 2D makeover colouring pages that were supposed to come out where children could colour in the makeup, um, kind of like a 2D makeup head. And I was wondering, was that anything to do with the makeup head you were working on?
2: I don't think so. And I don't remember that. So I don't know if that was something that was, they were coordinating that with um, Sharon, the artist, you know, Sharon Nettle Mm -hmm. or another outside artist. And it was being handled as a merchandising property by marketing, but I don't recall anything like that coming through us. And... Another thing is that I, I made a really stupid mistake when I got into the toy industry. I, my first two years in the industry, I failed to keep a date book. I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that I should. And so I have notebooks that have like notes for meetings and to-do lists and things. But I don't have a calendar where I wrote down things that I did until 1987. So that was about the time we moved to the new design center. So for 1996, I do have notes and things that I did, but, but they're just like meeting notes and lists and schedules and that kind of stuff. So uh, my notes from 1986 are not as complete and not as um, detailed as they were later when I started doing a calendar. But anyway, one of the things you asked me what I did next after the makeup, um, and, and that would be the llama. So I'll talk to you about the llama, but I'll, but oh, I, I love also, the, llama, also the infamous mention, llama. the infamous llama. I'll also mention that um, we, as I said before, we were working on multiple projects at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, this was never; it was never anything like uh, you come in and you work on gem, and then that you do that for a few months, and then you work on something else. We're working on things simultaneously so actually besides the makeup head the next thing that i got involved with was that was a you may have heard of the real baby doll line and don't get me started on that story but it was it was a doll artist named judith turner who hasbro hired to create an artist doll it was to look like porcelain because that was kind of a big deal anyway they, i didn't have anything to do with the designing of the doll but my assignment was to design a toddler doll so I spent the next few months working on that doll that was supposed to look like it was a little bit of a, a little bit older than this baby doll. So okay. So my first um, assignment I was working on um, this real baby doll, real baby toddler doll. I was working on um, the makeup head, and then I was working on the llama. And I'll tell you a little bit about how that got started. Uh, Everybody knows now, of course, that the llama was released as a mail-in premium, but that was never how it was intended to be. It was always meant to be part of the doll line. And the hook was that Jem and the Holograms were going on a world tour. And so they were going to go to these various places around the world, and we were going to create a storyline that when she went to a certain place that she would be presented pet and from that location representative of that, you know, geographical location in the world.
0: And that so the, the world
2: tour, that was the world tour. Yeah. I mean, but, but we, again, you, you also have to understand that the cartoon series and the dolls were created completely independently from each other. And yeah. as, as designers we had, unless we watched the cartoon, which I did not, we had no, knowledge, input, or insights into what was going on with the cartoon. And so we were independently coming up with concepts and then and then they were fleshing them out with the development of the cartoon down the road, depending on the information that Hasbro was providing, which wasn't all that great right i mean their communications were often lacking but anyway i digress so well, back to that's the-
1: actually one of the that's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast really is because um obviously we are both gem fans and Sorry. something and something we've sort of brushed up against a lot in uh, the gem fan community is people really not understanding that it was dolls and then cartoon done separately
2: right and- the, the purpose of the cartoons was to sell the dolls. Whereas if you look at other properties, like you look at Care Bears, for example, the dolls were used to support the licensed property. So if you, you know, Care Bears came out, uh, they were a property of American Greetings, those characters from Cleveland, which did Strawberry Shortcake and a lot of other properties. And so these were developed as greeting cards and licensed and licensed characters, and then the toys came down later to support them. Well, Jem was done opposite. The cartoon was done to support the toys, so Jem came first. And so the cartoon was like a a commercial, but it took on a life of its own, and and Hasbro benefited from that because the cartoon was so beautifully done and so detailed and had such wonderful stories, it really wasn't an advertisement for the dolls ultimately. Right, it, it had it. They stood on their own, but that's mm-hmm. how it was originally set up. And so we didn't work back and forth. We weren't, um, you know, we weren't coordinating. At least as designers, we weren't. That's not to say that our management team might have been meeting with uh, the the development company. What is that? Was it um,
1: Sunbo? Sunbo,
2: yeah, with Sunbo. They probably, I'm sure they were, but as designers, we weren't privy to that. You know any exchange that they might have been having with the anima- animators and the development team.
0: I know, and team. likewise, the animators had no idea what was going on with the toy line either. I know Christy Marks was very surprised to find out that they had made Dolls of the Starlight Girls, which were created for the cartoon and not the toy line.
2: Yeah, I, I, and I, I feel for Christy because I know she was always clamoring for information. Right, I mean, she was begging Hasbro to tell her what was going on and for whatever reason, and again, I wasn't privy to any of that, Hasbro was always reticent to share all the development with them. Maybe maybe there was a desire to kind of keep them a, a certain amount of mystery or mystique that things weren't exactly the same. I really I, I really have no clue. But maybe I know they were that...
1: just terrified of Mattel finding out through anybody on the animation team.
2: Well, that, I hadn't thought about that, but that's certainly that certainly makes sense. So anyway, we're we're going back to the world tour and so we I had I was in charge of the pet and so it was it was up to me to decide what the pet was going to be and like all good designers I called in my team, you know, my, the other designers in my group. We had a brainstorm. Cuz that's kind of what you do. And I remember having a brainstorm when we talked about what part what places in the world could you go to have an interesting animal that would be iconic and so we came up with a list of about four animals and I remember a koala was one um I I think that we had talked about a um uh, let me think there was some sort of big cat and I'm trying to remember
0: it has to be something Barbie doesn't have currently too that's
2: that's another good point we didn't want something that Barbie had and so we we looked at and I came up with the idea of doing the llama that she would go to South America, and so I I'm I know I did some sketches. I remember doing a doing a drawing of a pink llama, and again I it seemed like there was a big cat, but I, I and I'm trying to remember where it would have been. Maybe India. Maybe there was a tiger or something like that that she would go to India. But you know you kind of have to look at the fantasy, and you have you have Jem who's got pink and blonde hair and the the line was starting to get a little bit more colorful. And so um, I created the llama basically out of nothing. And I was quite um, captivated by the Hasbro line called snuggle bums, which are a line of these little plush critters that are made out of vinyl. And then they have plush that's glued on top. And I remember seeing how they were made and how they were made was they were rot- rotationally molded, which is how doll heads are done. It's a, a type of rodent. Soft vinyl is usually it's put into a mold and it's rotated, and you can root it because it's hollow, right? And it's mm-hmm. soft. And but what the but what the Snugglebums toys had was they had a ridge that was molded in, and so that they could glue the 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 plush into the figure and you wouldn't see the edge of the plush because it was recessed down inside you see what i'm saying
1: mm, yeah like a troll doll kind of yeah,
2: yeah you I just looked up the pictures of them you couldn't see the edge of the plush so you couldn't pull it up and so you know i came up with the idea to make it have long pink fur and you know and i designed it and i i do still have my original presentation rendering from 1986 is
0: that the yellow one no the
2: yellow one was actually just um, was a sample that was sent to us from China to approve the length and the construction. It wasn't for color. Mm. So they would, they would send us a box, you know, back in those days, there was no email. And so (laughs) we would, we would, you know, actually send letters and faxes and things back and forth to the factory in China. And it was, things were a lot slower. And so um, we would respect a certain kind of uh, plush, certain quality of plush and a certain length. And then what they would do is they, you know, they had made the mold of the character and they sent us back what we call counter samples, which are for us to look at. And and you approve counter samples for a variety of things. It might be for what we call construction, or it might be for color, or it might be for, you know, the final approval. Mm -hmm. And this was only for construction. So it was, they sent us those to make sure that the vinyl set down into the, you know, the body of the llama in in the proper way that the length was right, but it wasn't the right color. They just used what they had on hand. So they had yellow plush for something. So they sent us those samples and I got, we got a box of those. I snagged two of them, which I kept. And then at GemCon I actually sold one to a, a guy who was there at gym con, but I still have my other yellow, one. but the pink was always how it was designed. But I, you know, I have my original rendering of that llama, and it, and I did, of course, the technical drawings for the sculptor and, and, uh, it came out exactly how I envisioned it. The only thing was they ended up cost reducing out a lot of the accessories. It was going to come with a little bowler hat. It's going to come with a little hat box that snapped around the waist with a, like a little, um, waistband kind of thing and it was going to come with a little feeding dish you know it was going to have more oh, it ended up with the blanket and the brush which was shaped like a llama and, and i was happy with it. it there was also going to be a little neck piece a little soft uh, almost like a necklace made out of the same you know f- material as the blanket so that's the llama
1: well that i mean it's jam, it's got to be pink. Yeah. It's my mm-hmm. uh, most iconic part. But,
2: but the sad thing, of course, was how they ended up, why they ended up doing it as a mail-in promotion, because that way it was never the intention that it was going to be that way. And it was, I, I believe you know, they, they were going to eventually come up with other animals other than this one, when the holograms went on their world tour. And so um, I was really excited to have it because it was the first project that I did at Hasbro that came to market. And so I was excited to go to the toy store and see it there in the toy store.
1: Oh, that makes it extra sad.
2: Right. And then when they told us that it was going to be sold as a premium in a poly bag, you know, I was devastated and Mm-hmm. Very sad that it didn't get, and and of course later it was kind of marginalized, as they say. It was kind of mocked, like why does you know why is there a pink llama for Jim and a lot of because it's up. fun. It, but now it's taken on kind of a life of its own, and now it's cool. But there was a time. It's iconic. Yeah, there was a time when it was like sneered at. Oh, that stupid mm-hmm. llama for Jim. Why did they oh. do that?
0: Well, now it's very coveted. I know that. If I could afford one, I would have one. Like my friend got me a pink alpaca stuffed animal, which it's now named Rama, when I was having a bad day because she knows how much I love the pink llama.
2: Did you know that originally
0: the llama was called Dolly? Dolly Llama? D-O-L-L-I? I've well, heard i heard that name that before, yeah. Because I had talked to you about that at GemCon. Right, and,
2: and my my rendering has the name on it, and
0: it
1: says Dalai Lama. Yes. Now, I'm Gem looking through the pictures yes. on my phone, because yes. I could have sworn before I've seen pictures, like fashion designs, of a South American outfit for Gem.
0: Yes, was it was yes. like a that. Carly Hoff's
2: design, right? Yeah, I, yeah I, Carly, I did, I have seen that, and, and I and at this point, let me tell you something—a little something about how Hasbro is organized, was organized. I have no idea if they're still organized this way. This is how it was in the mid-eighties when I was when I arrived. Uh, the dolls group—we um, designed what we called the doll in the box. So that meant that everything that came with the doll in the box was designed by our group, and any fashions that came that supported the doll were done by another group and that they called that the soft goods group. And Carly was in that group. So, and in fact that group didn't even report to the same senior director as our group did. We had, we had a senior director and under her was the dolls group and the My Little Pony group. And then another group that was the playset group. And they also did things like Get in shape girl and faz and, you know, accessories and things like that. And so at the time I was there, there were just three groups in the girls group. And then there was a soft goods group and they had their own senior director. And the first year when I was at Hasbro, when we were, I told you we were all crammed in that building, the soft goods group were in a different building than us. And so their coordination um, was a little bit different. And these people, some of them had fashion. Uh, Carly, I know, was a costume designer. They had, you know, they were seamstresses. They were fashion people, pattern makers. But they weren't necessarily fashion designers. You know, they knew how to sew. They could take uh, something that you designed and make a pattern from it. But Jim was an op- you know, an opportunity for them to really expand their um, skill set. And so sometimes... I think the fashions coordinated really well. And other times I kind of look at them and say, what were they thinking? <laughs> but that's, but I think gem fans universally, I've, I found gem fans universally love all the fashion assortments as well as the dolls. And so uh, it, for me, from an you know adult doll designer point of view, sometimes I had misgivings about some of the fashions that were designed. Um, but, I thought that the the fashion that I saw that would have gone with the llama was, I thought, really cute. And I liked
1: it. Oh, I love it. I, I lovely. I love international themes with yeah, stuff. I think I, I?
0: I think I just found a picture and I posted a link to it.
1: Oh, good. oh, wonderful! Open in new tab. Oh, yeah, that that's the one I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. With the tiny pink llamas on the blanket. Yeah, yeah. and she's
0: got the hat to match. Uh, Rama yeah, she and, coordinate, Yeah, she coordinated.
2: Uh, as far as I can remember, she would have coordinated with me but that wasn't necessarily usually how it was done. You know, they, uh, their senior director would meet with our senior director and present all the stuff. And we designers of the dolls didn't have any feedback or input into what the fashion uh, or what the soft, what we call the soft goods group was doing. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. I mean, that's, I, um, I don't know if that's true for every company. I mean, it, it just depends on the company you're working for.
0: does that seem was, like an unusual way to divide it up. Yeah.
2: Well, another thing is that Hasbro was still pretty new to the doll business then. I mean, they had done a few dolls, but this was the beginning of kind of Hasbro's golden age of dolls. And you can't really think of all that many dolls that they did prior to 1980. There were just a few you know, right? So, and, and nothing that was hugely, I mean, Jim and Maxie and Moondreamers and all those, they were, uh, I mean, some of the smaller dolls weren't considered fashion dolls, of course, but they all involve fashion. They involve soft goods. So uh, the a lot of the people who were in the soft goods group at Hasbro at that time had been, had worked in play school. So they were more like, they did preschool things and they, they would do younger doll fashions. And so I think doing this all of a sudden jumping in from that kind of background to doing high fashion for a fashion doll was very new to them. I think Carly probably had the most, because she was a costume designer, you know, she had a flair for the dramatic and not all the designers had Mm. that flair. So very,
0: very fitting for a glam rocker. Yeah, Yeah, Gem's yeah.
1: fashions are crazy.
0: Yeah, they're,
2: they're crazy.
1: So, and, In a good way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Very 80s. It's kind of
2: fun.
1: Well, I think what's especially fun about Gem is it it's kind of just to the side of 80s stuff as well. So it is still, some of it, well, some of it's not that dated because it's kind of fantasy anyway.
2: Right, right. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. It, it's still, a lot of it still seems really fresh to me. And I think oh, that's, same. that's a sign of a really successful Toy line is how fresh you can look at that stuff. And maybe because it's iconic. It's hard to say. I mean, you can look at really, really old Barbie stuff, some of the stuff that was done in the early 60s. And even though it's very, very, you know, Jackie Kennedy-ish, you know, a lot of it, it's still got a really a fresh look because it was so novel and so detailed and Mm -hmm. so... Iconic, you know, and fun, I, think Jim- well, I
0: think into the mod era, they managed to hold on to that as well. Because you look at like the aqua blue fur trimmed trench coat with a mini skirt and thigh high oh, metallic yeah. boots, and it's so fantasy, it's just aged well because that's fun no matter what the decade is, exactly. Right. And yet,
2: and yet later, you look at something like you know, day to night Barbie or you know, peaches and cream, and you kind of go, uh. Yeah, that was, that was great in the 80s, but it hasn't
0: aged as, as well. Um, and I'm particularly fond of peaches and cream because I grew up with a thrift store peaches and cream. And I thought oh. of that like I had no concept as a kid of 80s fashion. So to me, that was a fantasy princess dress.
2: Oh, and I shouldn't disparage it because actually the peaches and cream dress was beautiful and the color mm-hmm. and, the, and the layers and everything. It was really pretty, but it's
1: so it's, romantic. It stands yeah, well, out
0: because it's not pink as well.
2: That's true. Well, do you know, and you probably don't know this, or maybe you do if you've studied the history of dolls, but um, you know, the first year or two of Barbie, there wasn't anything that was pink. Maybe oh, yeah. her, Maybe her negligee, No, you you would, you know, go back and look at, I've got the the little brochure that came with the original Barbie, and you look through, and there was no pink. There might have been, like, there there may have been a, there was a little negligee set that I think had a pink negligee, and there might have been a blouse or something, but it Mm -hmm. was all, you know, realistic colors, you know, there were black and white and red and, you know, you hardly ever see red on a fashion doll anymore. Lots of red. I have my silk and flame, my original silk and flame outfit on my original Barbie. Mm -hmm.
1: um, Oh,
0: gorgeous. I've seen you post pictures of that. It's a brunette bubble cut, right? Right, right.
2: Exactly. So, you know, that you'd see, you know, a brown coat on Barbie in 1960 and you would never see a brown coat on Barbie now it was just it was more realistic it wasn't uh-huh. it hadn't gone into the fantasy and girls had a different aesthetic you know well, girls yes. my age liked like we liked stuff that the grown-ups were wearing we weren't necessarily into the princess stuff
0: well, and i feel like you got those really like realistic colorings up even until the 70s. But, you know, I always, when recounting the timeline to people, call Superstar Barbie is the year Barbie became pink. Because there was pink in the line through the late 60s and 70s. But, you know, that whole Superstar Barbie is just really when the pink took over.
1: Right. It's when the sort of what people think of Barbie as Barbie. But I always think people have such a, like, people not necessarily into toys and dolls have such a, weird cultural relationship with barbie she's she's almost like a parody of herself in the sort of public consciousness
2: oh and 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 i remember as a you know as a fledgling toy designer in the you know probably the (laughs) mid to late 80s and there there was a time and and it it resurfaces every once in a while you know where there will be a um a resurgence of cultural critiques of barbie and this idealized body and you know, parents saying they're never going to let their child play with Barbie. And of course it happened later with Bratz. It happens all the time, but ultimately mm-hmm. little girls have never, and boys have never ceased their fascination with Barbie and her proportions and her, whatever she is, that just that imagination that you have with her. It's just, it's just magical. And, you know, we can be critical of individual Barbies or where's Barbie gone, but you know, you can't deny that she has been popular because children love to play with her. Mm -hmm. Oh,
1: exactly. I mean, there's nothing else really like a Barbie. The thing is there's nothing else. That's a tiny grown-up person. And I think that's what a lot of people seem to miss when they critique Barbie is they, they don't think of her as a mini adult. They're like, Oh, well, she's not wearing appropriate things for a child. And it's like, well, Bobby's not a child. Bobby is well, a 35-year-old fashion model, and the children like that.
0: Well, that was always... A... Sorry, when I was a kid, I really had a hatred of child dolls. Like, I was one of those kids that did not want a baby doll, not to mm-hmm. disparage baby dolls. But to me, I was like, I'm already a kid. Where's the fantasy in yeah, playing yeah. with a kid?
2: And I, and I think that the, the reason that I loved my career is because I have been able to do so many different kinds of dolls. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with that. And that's why I've loved doing so many different variety of things because children play with toys in so many different ways. You know, mm-hmm. younger girls tend to like the nurturing and then, you know, a little bit older it's, they want a friend, they want a best friend. then later they want something that's more grown up. That's aspirational. But when you were talking about, you know, Barbie being so iconic, I, funny little thing happened to me. I have a granddaughter who's seven and she's, um, you know, she likes LOL surprise and all the, you know, typical stuff that little seven year olds like. And she loves all the princess stuff. And I've got a little display in my studio and I have um, two or three maxi dolls up on my shelf. And so I've, I've got toys that the kids can play with. A lot of my later designs, my dollhouse, my Toys R Us dollhouse and and different things that I let them play with. But my older dolls, you know, because they're from, they're 35 years old, you know, I don't let them play with them. So she kept saying, what is that Barbie up there? And I said, honey, that's a Maxi doll. And she said, well, but she's a Barbie. You know, I mean, we had this big argument back and forth. And I said, no, she's not. Barbie she's a max and you know it's just Barbie is so part of the culture that any doll that looks like that doll is a Barbie and a child doesn't have any comprehension of who made it is it Hasbro is it MGA is it Mattel it's Mm -hmm. a it's a fashion doll and it's a Barbie and it's just it's like scotch tape or Kleenex or, or or hoover jello you know it's it's just or hoover right it's just it's whatever it's the brand name that becomes iconic for uh for the product and so you can't really mess with uh, barbie too much but i know i know hasbro really tried i I know you guys have been kind of curious about the development of maxi and how maxi came to be and how maxi is related to gem or if there's any relationship um do you have any particular questions you want to ask me about that or you want me to just kind of tell you my my version of how this all well, happened
1: i think we'd be interested in hearing your version because um i i mean we know a little bit about the development of maxi like from my understanding of it maxi was sort of conceived as the ever after high to gems monster high maybe for people that weren't exactly satisfied with Jem being so outrageous and glam rock or they want something a bit more like down to earth Well, Jem's heavy makeup
2: right uh, and, and I suppose there's some truth to it um, a lot of people think that um, Hasbro released um, Maxi when Jem was cancelled and it was because of that that they did that but that's not true uh, I think what, what actually happened was Uh, Hasbro became so successful in the mid eighties with girls products and dolls. And it wasn't just um, wasn't just Jim, but it was all of the other girl girls properties. It was my beautiful doll and it was um, dolly surprise and sweetie pops. And, and uh, there were, uh, there was a line of little baby cute little baby dolls that we were doing called um, love a by baby. and, and we were doing, we, be, we were becoming a premium doll company. And we were, be, and I believe, my feeling is what happened was Hasbro. And this is totally just my thinking. I, I have no um, firsthand knowledge because I was, again, I was a designer. I wasn't a decision maker. Was that Hasbro was looking for ways to expand their doll line to be more, to be broader. Right. And so Jim had some issues. Uh, Primarily, I think one of the biggest concerns that they had was Jim's size because she was taller than Barbie. What we thought, you know, what the design team thought was this is going to set us apart from Barbie. Nobody's ever going to confuse Jim with Barbie. But it ended up because Barbie is so iconic and, and the 11 and a half inch fashion doll is so iconic that if the clothes weren't able to be transferred from one doll to another, it became a liability. And of course there were a lot of complaints from parents that they, you know, they couldn't, their their gem dolls couldn't wear the Barbie fashions and the kids were getting frustrated. They probably didn't
0: fit in houses either.
2: they They (laughs) They didn't fit in houses. Good point.
0: So my, my
2: thinking, what happened from what I understand is that Hasbro was looking to expand their doll property. And so they acquired from Pedigree, you know, the British doll company that did Cindy, they, uh, they acquired the Pedigree rights to the Cindy doll. They didn't buy Pedigree, but they, they acquired the rights to do Cindy. And so, my first, uh, I went back through my old, my old uh, planners, and I have my first mention of, of Cindy dolls, which became Maxi was in May of 1987 that was the first mention and I was still working on Gem then I was working on uh, Hollywood Gem the accessories for Hollywood Gem during those months and it was and Gem was still around for two or three more months before it was finally dropped so Maxi did not replace Gem Maxi was developed simultaneously as it was going to be Cindy and I I think what happened was at some point there was um, some sort of conflict with actually using the Cindy with the, with what we were developing as a new look was so different than the British Cindy doll and it was so much more Barbie uh, I believe there was even a lawsuit that was made by um, Mattel that that Maxi was looking too much like Barbie and that probably happened a little bit later down the line, but um, we developed we developed this fashion doll, and it became Cindy. And so, uh, at some point within the first, because I I went through my planner, and starting in May when I first mentioned Cindy, uh, it up until August was the first time I mentioned the word maxi. So sometime between May and August, she went from being Cindy to being Maxie and so then at that point she was no longer part of that Cindy acquisition she became our own doll to do whatever we wanted to and then um one of my colleagues went and I believe that was probably the next year she went to to England to work for um because Maxie, I mean, Cindy ended up going, I guess, going back to England. And she went there and helped develop the British um, Cindy doll to look more Barbie-ish and more like Maxie. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's that's crazy. That's like the first big scoop for our podcast. <laughs> that, uh... Uh,
2: yeah. So, like I said, I, I my first mention of Cindy was in may of 1987 and I just said helped with Cindy prep for presentation so that's may 13th 1987 so at that point we were already you know working on what the doll was going to look like and then and then I started designing faces i I've got my first note that I designed my first cindy swimsuit on may uh, may 29th of 1987 so I have all these notes of you know, I was working on this, and the, as from everything I recall, these were the eventual faces that were released as Maxie. We didn't, they didn't send us Cindy molds, and then we modernized them. We started from scratch, developed our own dolls, called them Cindy, and then eventually, you know, a couple of months, three months later, changed it to Maxie. I don't have a note of when that exactly happened. It was just my first mention in my planner of when it was
0: called Maxi, and that was August.
1: Oh, that's that is so interesting.
0: Yeah, because a lot of people know about the Hasbro acquisition of Cindy, but it's seen as more of a '90s thing. I wasn't aware that it started so early. Yeah, it yeah
2: did when people and...
1: talk. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. When people talk about like the. Sort of order of events with it. People always say, I mean, we already sort of knew that Maxie hadn't been developed to replace Jem and was supposed to run alongside her, but people often talk about it in like, Jem died, so they made Maxie, and then Maxie died, so they bought Cindy. And it's like, no, no actually, no, no. Cindy goes in the middle.
2: Exactly, right. They they had Jem, and uh, honestly, I'm thinking that Jem was, was really on her way out. Um, I have a note. In July, I mean, I had, my last thing that I worked on on that, on Jim was the accessories for Hollywood Jim, and then the um, uh, I did the accessories for Regine, who is Paris. Anyway, those if you are familiar with those dolls, I did
0: the. Accessories. Oh, we are very familiar with them. Right, we're very um, big fans of Regine. Right, so I did the.
1: And i Hollywood did Gem. Por-
2: I did her portfolio. Um, I did, you know, the artist portfolio for Hollywood Gem. I created a Hollywood star, like the star on the Walk of Fame. It was going to have a, a cardboard and gold embossed Hollywood star that was going to come in the package, and I designed that. Oh. And I remember, you know, taking a toothbrush and and flicking, you know, ink onto the painted surface to make it look like the speckles in the sidewalk at the of the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So anyway, that was – but my last mention of Jem was in July of 1987 when I have a note um, at the top of my page that says Gem Lives. I think we were being reassured that Jem wasn't going anywhere, but shortly after it was canceled and I um, did not note in my – because I was working on so many other projects. In addition to working on Maxi and working on Jem – I was working on, you know, moon dreamers and star finders. I was working on, um, let's see, uh, 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 several products that never came to market. I was working on a bride doll. I was working on, um, yeah, several, several doll lines that never um, hit, you know, saw the light of day. A line of brides, a line of, Oh my
1: goodness, I'm just looking at my notebook I have so many Yeah, I guess Emma, do you want to intro this bit? Because I think I introed the last bit when we jumped in
0: Oh, uh, what are we going back to this time?
1: Um, I think it was the ugly pale pink lipstick on Raya
0: Oh right, let's, uh, let's talk about Raya's face a bit <laughs> And her makeup
2: So uh, when I was asked to do Raya's face, that was really quite a coup for me because, you know, I was, um, I was known for my faces and designing faces, but mostly for the younger dolls. And so, you know, Jim was special. She had to have very dramatic makeup and I had never done anything quite like that. So um, I, I painted Raya's face and I was so nervous. I mean, I, I think she's probably, other than Synergy, I think she's probably the only gem face that I did because when I did the the second edition of the holograms, I believe we stayed with the same face design that had been used previously. So Rhea was new. And um, I was a little bit nervous because her skin tone is dark, of course. She was... Uh, more or less a Hispanic type of ethnic doll and I, did, I wanted something that was going to stand out against her darker skin color but that wasn't going to be too um, cartoony looking and, and I really was really pleased however I have to say in production I was so disappointed that they gave her these really pale pink lips because that is not the color I would expect I'm, I'm really picky about my lip colors I like them to look naturally a little bit more fantasy. It could have been a little, maybe a little more pink than a normal person might've worn, but it was not be that pale pink. That kind of reminded me of the sixties when we all wore that horrible pale pink lipstick and I was not a fan of that look. So um, I have a Raya doll in my studio and a couple of months ago I took her and I got so sick of looking at those pink lips that I repainted them a little darker and now she looks just right. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes uh, i've seen your repainted one that you posted pictures of and her lips are much more vivid now
2: yeah i think she looks more natural but isn't that pink hair color just the best and i oh, did it's gorgeous and i did get to pick that color too and i was kind of surprised that she had that there was no other doll that had used that color you know we would get these um re- i guess they were like a ring that would have uh hair color samples on it Uh, hair looped around and we would get these books from the manufacturer and we use nylon doll hair whereas Mattel used Saran for Barbie dolls at that time I'm not sure if it's still the same but at at the time we were doing um, gem we were using nylon which is a little bit thicker the strands are a little bit thicker Saran is a little finer and so we were working with a manufacturer of hair of um, doll hair that was sending us all these colors and I remember finding that pink color in the book and being so excited because I I wanted that color and they approved it and so Rhea Rhea's pink hair and my face was the final but I did not design Rhea's fashion
0: I just did her from the neck up
1: oh, I, I wonder didn't... that's <laughs> well I did that bit out <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that I think Rhea's doll has such a beautiful color of pink in her hair and a lot of people talk about how it was redundant to have another character with pink hair and I've seen a lot of fan designs that give her more of like a coral color to differentiate oh, no. her from Gem. But I think it's interesting cuz her hair color is so much closer to what Jem's doll should have been, if should you have been Gem marketing.
2: Exactly. That is so true. She she should have been that color, but, you know, she was, she had the mixture of blonde and pink, Mm -hmm. you know, to give her, her two identity, to give more evidence for that. And so to have a, to have a doll with all pink hair, and of course her hair had a curl to it that gems didn't have. It it was a different style. I mean, I, I never thought, they never gave me a hard time at all about doing the pink hair. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think, um, isn't there a problem with the gem dolls? Where their pink hair kind of fades with age, a lot. Yes, them. yes, and
2: I—it's true, and I really don't know why that happened. Um, There's—it it was obviously a flaw in the dye process in China, because that's where all the doll hair was made. Um, there have been uh, there have been incidences of other things happening, not to necessarily the gym, but other dolls due to aging process that they haven't aged well. In the late 1990s, I worked on the um, Chatty Cathy, when I was at Mattel, worked on the Chatty Cathy reboot. You know, that was a time when there were a lot of reproduction dolls going on and it was getting close to Chatty. Chatty Cathy was released right around the same time Barbie was. Of course, she was a much younger doll. I believe she came out in 1960, Barbie came out in 1959. Mm -hmm. And so um, they, uh, Mattel wanted to redo her. So I was on the team, the large doll team, we were working on her. So we did the first two Chatty Cathy dolls that were released. Um, Their eyes turned red and pink with time. One, one doll was a brunette with like brown eyes. And one doll was a blonde with blue eyes and the blue eye doll eyes turned pink, the, the irises and the red and the, brunette dolls eyes turned red and it was you know obviously a flaw in the from the the quality of the eyes from China and it's it's horrible. I mean that, that kind of thing happens. So it's not quite as dramatic. I mean nobody's looking at Jim and saying it's ghoulish like they did the poor Chatty Kathy dolls. But you know occasionally there'll be something about a, a part that will not age as well, a fabric that cracks. Or, you know, face paint that fades unevenly or hair color that fades. I don't know too many dolls that hair color fades, but the, the gems really did. And I really don't know why. It was just, yeah. you know, a flaw in the manufacturing process in some way.
0: And I think a lot of people these days, like modern fans, aren't really aware that that isn't what the gem dolls always look like. So it's good to right. get that explanation.
2: Right. And so the doll, she looks like she's just blonde. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to even see the pink at all It just blends so well But it was very definite in the early The original doll
1: Well, I've I've had the uh, The luck of finding some rock and curl gems Whose hair was so matted It had completely, like, cocooned the pink inside it And protected it from the sun <laughs> That's <laughs> so awesome They still had shocking pink I'd love to yeah. see
2: those awesome. Oh
1: yeah, it's great Well, I actually found I used it to colour match um, To uh, colour that... Um, you can buy um, currently and it is a, a literally a perfect match so I rerouted a bunch of my gem dolls and that I was like, right, you can be cartoon accurate and have flamingo pink hair.
2: So I have a question because I know there's a lot of a lot of artists who are doing uh, rerouting and doing customs and stuff. Do you just do it by hand with a needle and thread? How do you do the root the rooting?
1: I just root the heads um, with a needle and, and hand. I, I don't tend to do big custom things and mainly when I re it's for restoration purposes because I'm very interested in. Um, shocker! The man who wants to do a podcast about uh, preserving <laughs> doll history is into preserving how dolls look. Um... But, yeah, um, I, i've I've known people who have actually saved up and bought um a routing machine, like um would be used for prototyping. But mm-hmm. then again, the people who have bought them that like, I know actually work in the industry, so that's probably right. why they why they yeah. bought one.
0: I've only rerouted one doll, and it was a, a Malibu pJ with a very bad haircut. So I just I gave her green hair, but no. I did that by hand with a needle. And I think that's how most of the people who are just collectors and fans do.
2: I have a friend out in California that I worked with at Mattel, and and whenever I need anything done, I just ship it off to her and she roots it for me. Well, her, you know, she, that's what she does. She's a stylist and a router. So uh, I've never tried to do anything like that by hand. I mean, you know, I've always worked for a company or had access to people that could do it, and you know, there are certain things as a doll designer that you can do. One of the, I know, one of the questions you sent me ahead of time that. We thought maybe we might talk about was a little bit about how um, assignments are given to designers and how how the workload is kind of divided up, and I think this kind of lends itself to that kind of a conversation because uh, it it definitely is divided up by skill set. You know, there are people who do some things well, and a you know a good manager, a good director, utilizes their design staff based on the things that they do well. Not that you can't stretch. I mean, for me, working on Gem and then Maxi uh, was my first experience with working on fashion dolls. And, and it really helped me later on down the road to have that experience. And I remember my boss trying to teach me different things about, you know, the, um, the face deco or rooting and different, you know, as I was learning the process. So I really had to stretch. But uh, you know, workloads are really based on the things that you're good at. And it de- again, it depends on the size of your company. It, at a very large company like Mattel, you have people that their whole job, the only thing they do is root he- doll heads, or the only thing they do is paint doll faces. They don't design product. They don't do anything else. There's people who just design the fabrics for the doll fashions. Mm -hmm. Um, but you have a smaller company and you don't have that luxury because you either have to have a stable of freelancers or your designers have to be really versatile. And so I'm so grateful that I've worked for different size companies. So I learned, learn different skills. Um, I always working at um, Mattel and Hansborough, we have a model shop, right? That's something, you know, we have people who build the models nowadays. A lot of it is done 3d, design and 3d printing. But at that time, everything was done by hand. And so, um, when I went to work for Fisher price, which was also a pretty good sized company, our company culture was that the designers had to make their own models. And I didn't, you know, and it didn't necessarily mean that you went down to the wood shop and you made everything out of wood, you bolted it together, but you had to learn how to make models out of foam core out of, uh, carving things out of foam, uh, cobbling things together, maybe working with clay, and then you might be able to hand it off to your model shop. But, you know, so you, you develop different skills as you go. And because I've worked for enough different companies, I've developed enough different specialties, but I don't do everything. There's I don't sculpt and I don't sew. And um, I found that in my experience that if you were a person who specialized in sewing, that's what you'd end up doing. Meaning you would be sewing for other people and you wouldn't be able to necessarily, it could enhance your ability to design fashions if you could sew them, but you'd spend 90% of your time just sewing stuff for other people, you know, other designers, because most of the designers don't sew. So, um, Again, you have, you have various skill sets and, you know, any any designer has to utilize sculptors, 3D designers, si- sample makers, um, you know, hair rooters, whatever it is. And not everybody can do all those things. And generally, there's nobody who does everything but I tried to be a designer who could do almost everything. You know, I did my own artwork. I was able to do all my own graphics and illustration. I did my presentation renderings. I designed fabrics, designed faces, designed hairstyles, uh, all those things. And it just, you know, makes you a better, more well-rounded designer. One, of, one of the things that I did kind of want to talk about um, that's I think is important for people to understand because uh, is licensing and, Um, licensed toys and what that means. Because one of the questions that uh, I'm often asked is, you know, what, what toy do you wish you had designed or what line do you wish you had worked on or or what, you know, which ones do you like? And um, I think a lot of young people who aspire to be designers want to work on a particular line. You know, they, they want to work on Barbie or they want to work on, wonder woman or you know the
1: next monster high right
2: right they want to work on monster high um i'm a designer who doesn't feel that way i i don't i don't have one something that i want to work on because i'm the kind of person that i want to create what i design so my favorite designs have been things that i came up with my own ideas about and actually my least favorite thing to do is work on licensed properties and i've done Many, many, many licenses. I've worked on Disney princesses. Of course, I've worked on things like Cabbage Patch Kids, which are extremely licensed. I've worked. Uh, if, if Barbie, I guess, is, you know, it's a license, but it's not an entertainment license. It was created by Mattel. And so it is what Mattel determines it to be. But working on Disney, I've worked on, uh, you know, PBS things that were like, uh, I worked on Puzzle Place, Puzzle. Um, Puzzle Factory, Puzzle Place. It changed its name so many times. Puzzle Place. Uh, that was a PBS show back in the mid-90s, like like Muppets, like Sesame Street. And I've worked on that kind of thing where you have a style guide. I've worked on bear and Sting bears. Um, and those are my least favorite because they are they're constrained by the whoever holds the license. So if you work on Disney, a Disney license you have a style guide, you can only use the colors that are in the style guide, you have to use, everything has to be approved by the licensor. And that's such a creative constraint because, you know, Disney or whoever holds the license, they have the final say. And so um, I always say, I just like to work on dolls and toys that are more open-ended and maybe aren't involved with a license. Yeah, because then you can make sure they're
1: as fun as possible
2: right and and it can stand on its own merits and and you're not thinking oh that's successful just because it's you know frozen it's successful because it can stand on its own however of course a lot of things that are released as accessories or play sets and things for a um, licensed character were actually designed independently one of the examples of that that we often use is Tickle Me Elmo. Do you remember Tickle Me Elmo? That was mm. such a hit hit toy for Tyco back in it was the early 90s, I guess. But originally, the concept came in as a monkey that laughed when you tickled it, and it was you know the the company liked it. It came in from an outside inventor. They really liked it. But the only way to sell it was to attach it to a licensed property, and of course, it made it sell a hundred times, hundred thousand zillion more times. Uh, toys, being Elmo, than it would if it was just some random tickle me monkey. So, a lot of times, you know, there's wonderful concepts that you'll see attached to a, uh, you know, a Barbie or uh, another property. That was actually developed as a standalone, but the but the toy company made the decision to attach it to a successful license or a successful line because they knew it would sell more toys. So that's uh, you know that's kind of part of being an inventor. And a lot of us, in addition to designing, also are part of the inventing community where we submit um, concepts to the toy companies to try to sell them. And then they often completely change them to either attach them to a licensed property or you know to, for their own demographics or their own needs. So that's a whole other, it's a whole other part of toy designing that isn't talked about all that often is the inventor and their part in toys.
0: I think there's sort of an inverse of that as well where um, where you run into developing a product designed to be a licensed toy and then the license falls through so you have to rework it to make it an original property.
2: Yeah, that I think that does happen. Um
0: I think that's I think- what happened with the Jewel Riders dolls I believe. Wasn't that like intended to be DC superheroes, I think? I have no clue on that one. I think oh, I think that's something our friend Linda is really into uh superhero toys. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that she had mentioned. I'll have to double check that with her.
1: Listeners, keep an ear out for Linda because she might be on later in another episode. Nice.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, there are stories. I could tell you stories. There's not enough hours in the day to tell all the stories.
1: Speaking of hours, we, I mean, we're obviously going to be cutting down what we've taped, but I feel like this episode's already going to be like two hours. (laughs) Um, Is there anything you really wanted to uh, tell us?
2: Um... You know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I think that there is, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a thing about the toy industry. You know, I, when I discovered I'd been out of college for 10 years when I became a toy designer. And so I came in a little bit, I was a late bloomer. You know, most of my colleagues were much younger than me. And I was, I was a mom And most of them were single young people and fresh out of college. And so I was a little bit older. But when I discovered the toy industry, it was like I'd come home. I mean, every I was an illustrator and I wanted to be a children's book illustrator, as I mentioned. But I knew that I would never be the best children's book illustrator. You know, I knew that there were people who were so much better than me. And the, the competition was fierce and I just didn't, I, I didn't know what style I wanted to do to be an illustrator. I had so many different styles and I couldn't pick one because you kind of have to have a style, right? You can't just be all over the place. But when I discovered toys, it was so perfect because every project was starting over again. Every project was different. I could do a cute little sweet baby doll one day and I could do a edgy fashion doll the next day and I could do play sets and I, you know, I could do all these different styles and different things. And, you know, I found that most of us, I'm, I'm friends with so many colleagues that I've had through the years, starting from the very beginning of my career and almost without exception, people stay in the toy industry because they love it. You know, I, I knew one lady when I was at Fisher Price and she was one of those industrial design types. She lasted about a year because toys just weren't for her. She was more of a, you know, she wanted to design like, you know, kitchen cabinets or electronics things. She, she didn't have that playful spirit. But there's just something about designing toys that those of us who have found our home and toys love. And for me, it's all about the kids You know, it's not about about the the fad or about making a lot of money or about having the most successful toy. It's about you know creating something that young people have an attachment to, an emotional attachment. When I when I hear stories about people who had an attachment to something that I had a part in, that to me that's just like worth its weight in gold. That's what I do it for.
1: Well, I think that's what fashion dolls are really good at. And what Barbie specifically as a brand has really excelled at is they're kind of everything to a child at different stages for that child. You know, when a child's quite young, they kind of baby the fashion doll. Um, And then as they get older, it's, like you said, a friend. And then it becomes kind of a what you could become thing uh, of acting out, like Ruth Handler originally envisioned, acting out adult life. And I think that's why Barbie's survived so long is because she's always reinventing herself, and the children are always reinventing her.
2: I think so, and and, and Barbie has been successful at reimagining herself as so many different things, and good for her. You know, I mean, I have like Madonna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Barbie's aged well, anyway. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just love. I love this industry, you know, I love going to toy fair and seeing old friends and see what's being done. I, you know, I, the aesthetics have changed. And in some ways I'm, I'm not keen on the changes, but again, you know, you have, if you want to be a viable designer, you have to kind of move with it. And I remember, I always said that Bratz changed everything. And I really feel that way. I really feel like Bratz changed the doll industry more than any other, Other than Barbie, completely, completely. and it changed the aesthetic that we were doing. Of course, that happened in 2000, 2001, early 2000s, and and you know, before everybody was wanting cute and sweet, now they wanted edgy and and sophisticated and it, you know, you kind of had to reinvent yourself. And now, of course, the aesthetic has changed again. And it's a lot more, you know, the, the LOL Surprise look. And 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 sometimes I wonder how this is all going to shake out. I, I try to look at the big picture. I think, you know, in five years from now, are people going to look at LOL Surprise or similar kinds of uh, products and say, oh, that's so 2020 you know that I think
1: they will I kind of I like, think they definitely will I
2: kind of like classic you know I'm a little bit more classic and you know recently I did a big project for Moose and and I'd been hoping to do some design work for Moose because they're such a, a hot wonderful company and I can't tell you what the project was but all I can say is it wasn't anything that was super super trendy and I thought well that's okay you know I'm not uh I'm not on the cutting edge of, of the trendy doll looks. And I do something that's more classic. That's probably where I will stay, you know, kind of in that look. I'm not, I'm not a cutting edge kind of person, but I do, you know, I do like, um, I do like drawing things that are, are sweet. You know, I like, I.
1: Well, like you said, you know, it's a cycle. I think it's definitely going to come down the pipeline that parents are maybe going to start to want something a bit more innocent especially when the market is so saturated with very adult looks
0: and i think we'll want i think we'll want to return to realism eventually too because every doll on the market right now has a gigantic head
1: the post oh, brats world yes
0: even barbie's head is so much larger than older barbies that like sunglasses and hats from older dolls do yeah. not fit the new ones
2: that's a really good point. Yeah. The proportions have changed and, and it, right. It's cyclical effect. I, I was thinking really seriously about doing a, a graphic of taking each. Well, it actually it was sparked by your, your original question about how is the industry changed in the different decades. And I started thinking, I'd like to do a visual graphic of a compendium for each decade of doll faces what was considered stylish. And at first I thought I would do one from, and I thought you can't do that. You know, you can't just pick one because cabbage patch kids are obviously very different than strawberry shortcake or rainbow. Bre- you know, you can't say the eighties is cabbage patch kids or something. You've got to have a, a variety, but I would love to do that work because, and to, just so you can see from say maybe the forties on, cause I grew up in the fifties and sixties. And so mm-hmm. the dolls that I liked before Barbie, were much different looking
0: than a the tar- little Miss Revlon and such.
2: Yeah, yeah, I have my little Miss Revlon, but she looks so Aww. different from Barbie. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we always joke that like Tammy is like the missing link between Miss Revlon and Barbie, uh, she, and, and even and though she came out she, after.
2: She exactly is. She really is a missing link. Um, and Tammy was is a really pretty doll. Um, Another doll that's a little bit younger that is, she's not really a missing link, but maybe she was like a stepping stone, was the original, um, you know, I can't say her name, uh, Betsy McCall. Ah, Betsy orig- McCall, yeah. She was yet obviously younger, she, but she was still, she was a step up from, say, the Ginny doll or, you know, the, the mm-hmm. old. Um,
0: maybe a little more comparable to like a step between Tammy and something like Penny Bright. Yeah, yeah. I think Tammy and Penny Bright are, I guess Penny Bright's a little younger than Tammy, right? Penny Bright confuses me because she looks so much like a small child, yet she drives a car.
2: (laughs) Well, and and think about the proportions. You talk about heads, you know. I look at my my little Miss Revlon doll, and her head is ginormous (laughs) compared to Barbie. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and and yet I probably, there were probably two years past, you know, I probably got my Little Miss Revlon when I was eight and I got my Barbie when I was 10. Mm-hmm. So just the aesthetics changed that quickly. I, um, yeah, I, but I agree. And I I think, um, well, and then the Little Chap family, they're, mm-hmm. the proportions on those, they're smaller, but they're kind of similar to...
0: And I um, think like Judy Little Chap, is kind of comparable to being... An older version of the same sort of idea. Yes, glamour-y. yes, yes.
2: Oh yeah, exactly. Oh, you're so knowledgeable. I love talking to you about all this.
0: <laughs> I am a big fan of vintage, so I do have a pretty good grasp on the older
1: lines. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you enjoy talking to us because I hope more people would like to talk to us after this.
2: I hope so. Well, I'm I'm excited to be involved with your podcast, and you know, if you want to invite me back anytime. You know, feel free
1: oh, we'd love to thank you
0: yeah i was thinking it'd be really fun to have you back to talk about maybe the more play sets and doll house mm-hmm. side of things because i saw it seems like you did a lot of that in the 2000s
2: i did i did all those barbie um i did all those things i did the you know peekaboo petites ones play sets for that i did a the, lot of the poly i did the i did poly pocket oh tons of i designed Polly. the fashion poly doll yeah and then, a, and then a bunch of the play
0: sets i was just about to bring up that i have such a hard time not calling them fashion poly because i had both bluebird poly pockets as a kid and the mattel poly pocket and so uh-huh. to me they're still very different and the one is fashion poly but no one knows what i'm talking about if i say But that. i know <laughs> i know exactly
1: <laughs> hmm I had a, a Bluebird Polly Pocket uh, horse stable as a kid, and oh my god, that was the best toy. The horse had an actual brushable mane, oh, I, even though it was those toys. Poly were, scale.
2: Those toys were brilliant. They were just—I would love to have worked on. I love miniature stuff. I mean, I love working on the little, the small stuff. I worked on a, and, and I've also I've posted so much stuff on my Instagram, but I worked on a, a little um, playset segment that never came out by a company called. Um, DSI down in, they were down in Texas and it, it was a little it was a, it was to compete with Polly Pocket and they were called Teeny Teens and I did all these little play sets and I designed all these dolls for them and then they never, I, I guess they went out of business They uh, they got sold, they were they did a lot of special feature dolls in the 90s You know, like the praying doll, Grace, or something like that. They did all these little... And they all had kind of the same faces. But then they wanted to branch out in the early 2000s and and do play sets and stuff. But I don't think their smaller dolls ever worked. They did celebrity dolls, like a Marilyn Monroe doll. Yeah, that's something that I think
0: really draws me to miniatures and mini dolls is the the play sets of it. Because it's so hard to do a good play set at a 12-inch scale. Oh yeah, oh, it's it's got ridiculous. A orange doll. You know, think yeah. about things like the Kenner Glamour gals, which were tiny, and that's oh, the yeah. only reason you could have the full size cruise ship for them.
2: Exactly. Yeah, you can't do that with Barbie, you should had popped out the top. Well they they figure out ways of doing it, but mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, I did a lot of poly Pocket, you know, play sets. I did a you know, a camper and I did all those beach segment stuff and um I'm sure I did some others, but Anyway, that was, that was fun. I really enjoyed working on, oh, I did some that didn't come out. I did one that was really weird. There were some designers, because I was freelancing in those days. There were some designers who had aesthetics that were just way too sophisticated for, um, for Polly Pocket. There was this place that I designed, never shared it yet, but it was very, kind of looked like a Greek. It had like all these statues that looked like Greek. Carvings and and columns, and it just didn't fit with Polly. I just couldn't see that little girls would think that that was fun. But hey, I I got paid, you
0: know, right? Oh yeah, and Polly Pocket is much more cutesy. Like I'm a sort of nerd that would have enjoyed something like an ancient ruins playset. Yeah, that's kind of more like carnival and well and like those rock star sets that I loved as a kid with the stage that played music and
1: oh
2: yeah those so fun mm-hmm.
1: oh I think the moving stuff with Polly sets like um I had uh, like a poly dog show mm. play set with magnets that made the dogs dance on Polly's stage and also it was you know it's just great yeah
2: those, are, those fun. are fun I did a I did a beach house not part of the beach segments that I've shared but something different I've never posted those yet i probably should dig those out of my files and anyway there's just i've got so
0: much stuff um i think we'd love to have you back to talk more about your work in the 2000s and a lot more of the playset side of things
1: oh definitely yeah that'd
0: be fun
2: i'd love to do that
0: Sounds good to me. Yeah. All right. So I think it's about time that we wrap up our conversation here with Stephanie. Uh, Thank you for coming on.
2: I really had so much fun talking to you guys, and you're so knowledgeable, and you're so much fun, enthusiastic. Anybody who loves toys
0: and dolls like I do is going to be friends forever.
1: (laughs) Oh, thanks.
0: Well, we hope we can have you back sometime to talk about other topics in the genre of toys. So if you'd like to be found online, where can people find you?
2: You can find me on Instagram at Steph Designs Toys. That's S-T-E-F Designs Toys. I have a website, Stephanie design.com And that's where you can find me.
0: All right. And you can find me at emmacate.sequentialarts on Instagram. If you want to see my art, a lot of it is doll related.
1: And you can find me at Joe on Instagram. Um, hopefully going to be using that more. My friends have bullied me into keeping a better uh, Instagram profile um, to coincide with this podcast. And speaking of the podcast, you can find us on our very own website, talkingdolls.org slash home. Links to all of our social media there. And, uh, you know, find us on your favorite social media. Give us a follow. We'd love for you to reach out to us.
0: All right. Well, I guess we'll, we'll see you next time. Well, I guess not see, but we'll talk to you next time. Talk some dolls.
1: Talking dolls. <laughs>
0: Thanks
2: thanks so Mm -hmm. much for having me you guys it was
1: really fun it was really great to have you um thank you so much for your time and um you know we'd love to have you back again to talk about like Mm post-millennium stuff
0: awesome let's do it it's a date